This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Happy Friday. The weekend is here. Mm. We made it through another week. Awesome, awesome feeling to make it to the weekend. Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, the host of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. And, you know, there's no other choice but on a Friday to celebrate the weekend. We must stick the landing. We must have an incredible show on Friday. And uh, we cooked up something we think is incredible. Uh, I'm going to go off the cuff and start a fire. Um, and then I'm going to bring in Steve Kim and TJ Moe to fan those flames of that fire. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, Tennessee um, politician uh, Tom Leatherwood, who has uh, promoted and put forth the common law marriage bill uh, that the Democrats have spun into some national story of it allegedly legalizing um, underage marriage. Uh, we'll ask Tom Leatherwood directly, hey, you know, get what you're trying to do with the common law marriage thing. One man, one woman, but why not just include the age portion in there that's commonplace in Tennessee and just, you know, take this controversy away. We'll ask Tom Leatherwood about that. Uh, and then Uncle Jimmy will be here to help us with our approval rating, and that'll be our show. Uh, the fire is going to be about <clears throat> Disney and Disney and sports. And, and I'm going to try to tie all this together off the top of my head. I got a few notes here uh, written in my uh, laptop that I'll refer to from time to time. But mostly it's just going to be me and you and, and me trying to package together what's going on in sports culture and attach it to what's going on in American society and the culture overall. And then I'm going to bring TJ Moe and Steve Kim in to talk about it. And uh, well, just let me get the ball rolling. I'm, I'm going to start here as I try to unpack this. Did you guys know, any of you sports fans out there, that uh, over the course of his 15-year NBA career, Michael Jordan played all 82 NBA games nine times. Nine times Michael Jordan played all 82 regular season NBA games over the course of his 15-year career, 15-season career. Uh, LeBron James, in playing, I think, 19 seasons, he's done that once. He's played all 82 games one time, I believe off the top of my head, that was in 2017, he played all 82 games. Other than that, it's been load management here, injury there, rest here. And, and so the other night, I believe it was Tuesday night, 
the Lakers were facing playoff elimination. They were playing at home against the Phoenix Suns, the best team in the NBA. Lakers are facing playoff elimination Tuesday night. LeBron James set out with a sore ankle. He missed a playoff elimination game with a sore ankle. I know the initial thought, people that, you know, can't stand me, is, ah, here goes Whitlock, beating up LeBron again. I'm not bringing this up to beat up LeBron. I'm not trying to denigrate LeBron James with this anecdote. I'm just speaking facts about a cultural shift in basketball. Michael Jordan, the best player perhaps of all time in the NBA, took great pride in playing all 82 regular season games. There were like three other times he played 80 or more. Most of his career, including his final season with the Washington Wizards at age uh, 39, Michael Jordan played all 82 games. He was a reflection of that era and how important competition was to his era of basketball players. LeBron James is the uh, greatest player of the post-Jordan era. I'm not trying to denigrate him. But he's also a symbol of where NBA culture and sports culture has gone. Competition has been de-emphasized. Having the greatest competitive fire is not as important as it used to be. And it's easy to say, oh, players have just gone soft, it's all about money, uh, they're just not built like Michael Jordan and the guys from that era, the whole thing's gone soft and LeBron's a wimp. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing that there has been a cultural shift and something has been done to the culture to shift it so that the sports world is less competitive and more soft. Or is it softer? I don't know if it's more so. It's probably softer. The sports world is softer. And I say, and, and what this conversation is about today, is that Disney is the reason sports culture has gone soft. In 1996, Disney acquired ABC and ESPN. They took over the worldwide leader in sports. Disney did in 1996. Jordan's heyday in the NBA ended, uh, I think, in 1998. So at the tail end of Jordan's dominance of the NBA, his second three-peat uh, with the Chicago Bulls, here comes Disney in to take over the worldwide leader in sports, ESPN. And at the time, no one thought much about it. No one knew the significance of it. But I think here in 2022, it should be becoming quite apparent that when Disney takes over an industry, it's going to significantly change that industry. And Disney's acquisition of ESPN was an acquisition of the sports world and Disney's influence on the sports world. And so just to put this all in further perspective, uh, two years before, in 1994, Disney tried to acquire NBC and failed. 
NBC at the time had the NBA contract. Bob Costas, Ahmad Rashad, Isaiah Tyler. NBC was in partnership with the NBA at the time that Disney tried to acquire NBC and failed in 1994. They turn around two, two years later, take over ABC and therefore ESPN. Six years after acquiring ESPN and ABC, Disney bought the rights to the NBA. Disney, again, a global corporation with a global vision, wanted to get involved in America's most global sports, basketball. And so Disney, immediately after getting ESPN and ABC, they go out and buy the NBA in 2002. One year later, LeBron James enters the NBA. And so LeBron James entering the NBA in 2003, he enters a league that is in bed with Disney and enters a league that has a global vision and he has bought all into it with Nike and everything else. And LeBron James is part of a strategy that Disney has for sports, particularly basketball, to promote the values most important to Disney. So now I'm gonna transition and take a little break from the sports aspect of this. And then now let's just discuss and evaluate Disney's agenda unrelated to sports that is becoming very widely known and accepted. It's being unmasked that Disney has an agenda as it relates to grooming and grooming kids. And so any of you that have been paying attention to social media and the media space ha have been watching this conversation about grooming play out all over social media. And so maybe there's some of you because Someone asked me the other day over social media, what is grooming? And because the word groomers and grooming is being used a lot over social media, it's being talked about, and, and people, are, people on the left are very defensive about this charge, that they're groomers, and some, some people don't know. So I, I wanna read you, this is kind of the definition with my little tweak on it, again, and, and with no negative intent, I'm not trying to take anything out of control, but this is what my definition of grooming is based off of everything I've read up, how other people have described grooming. Grooming is the act of building a relationship, trust, and emotional connection with a child so that you can shape their sexual, gender, political, and racial worldview. Grooming. Building a relationship with a child so that you can shape their sexual, gender, political, and racial worldview. This is what the parental rights bill in Florida is about. It's trying to stop this grooming process that's going on in our schools. Ron DeSantis is at the forefront, and Florida is at the forefront of this fight. They have passed a parental rights law that Disney a California-based company has publicly opposed. 
Disney and its employees have put Ron DeSantis and Florida and this bill in the crosshairs. They've called it the don't say gay bill. It has nothing to do with saying the word gay. It's about parents being able to control, object to school systems, trying to teach kindergartners through third grade. That's four, five, six, and seven year olds about sexuality and gender. Parents in Florida and most right-minded parents, they want the right to teach their kids about sexuality and gender. They want to groom their children in the way that they see fit, not leave it to crazy school teachers. And so I want to play, I want to start here by playing uh, uh, just a collage. Libs of TikTok does an awesome job of capturing the sentiment of teachers across the country, very upset that Florida and other places and parents are starting to push back against this grooming process that we, we're seeing from school teachers. And so here's a compilation of just teachers on camera filming themselves, talking about their desire to groom young people as it relates to gender and sexuality. One of the things that teachers always do at back to school night and meet the teacher and things like that is they like send home this cute little like meet the teacher thing where it has like a little bio about us, some of our favorite stuff, just so that you know who we are. How do I do that next year? Do I lie? and not talk about my marriage? Do I pretend I'm single? Do I invalidate my spouse's stance as a trans femme person? Ready, when they've been exposed to information, they're ready to learn about it, whether you think they are or not. And the research says that there is no age too young to talk about pretty much anything. If they know about it, they're ready to learn about it, right? So there is no you know, what we think is always age appropriate. It is if they don't know about it. That I don't care what the government tells me to do. I am going to do what I think is best for the health and safety. And that includes mental health and safety and emotional health and safety of my kids. I will never let any child come through my classroom feeling unloved or ashamed for who they are. Um, You know, like the LGBT... Uh, promotional like uh, this is a safe community kind of stuff the rainbow stuff all up in my room and I told them I'm like if you look around the room that should give you an answer to your question so I did officially tell them um, they of course went berserk so instead of teaching social studies today um, they just asked me a whole bunch of questions about being gay so I think it was pretty well that's what's going on in schools. And there's a bunch more of these videos. I want to show you one more. This is from MSNBC. This is a teacher complaining, I think, about not being able uh, to talk with his first graders about his uh, sexual relationship or marriage relationship, whatever relationship. Here, l let's just play the clip. It scares me to death that I am not going to be able to have these conversations with my children. 
because they're going to ask me what I did on the weekend. I don't want to have to hide that my partner and I went paddle boarding this weekend because then they ask, well, what does partner mean, Mr. Bernard? And, you know, I'm worried. Can I tell them what it means? I'm also worried for my kids. I have a little girl this year who has two moms and the kids are curious about her two moms. They want to know about her two moms. You know, if they come to if they go to her and ask her about her two moms and she doesn't know what to say, they're going to come to me and ask me. And then, you know, so what do I do? It just it opens up uh, for parents to really take some legal action against the schools and teachers. And I I am afraid uh, for myself, my colleagues and my students. I believe that man is teaching first graders. That was a collage. That was five groomers, basically. They want to groom your kids in their beliefs about sexuality and gender. I'm not objecting to their beliefs about sexuality and gender. I don't think it's their job, their role, to groom other people's kids on sexuality and gender. Teach math, teach English, teach gym class, uh, teach history, teach accounting. Sexuality and gender should be left to the parents, in my view. And I think a view of a lot of parents in Florida and across the country. But there's this whole grooming thing that has taken hold in the educational system. And it has taken hold in the movie industry, particularly the child movie industry, because Disney has been promoting the discussion and a worldview and philosophy on gender and sexuality in the, in the movies they directed kids. And now here in 2022, they've become more confident about talking about their desires openly. Disney has been imposing its worldview on sexuality and gender on kids for years through their movies, and they intend to not do it in a sneaky fashion anymore. They're talking publicly about their desires, about what they've been doing in a sneaky, subtle version, and now they're going to become more overt. Let's play two clips back to back from Disney executives, Disney employees, talking about what they intend to do with their movies and imposing their culture. I'm here as a mother of of two queer children, actually, Um, uh, one transgender child um, um, and one pansexual child, um, and and also as a leader. We have many, many, many LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and and yet we don't have enough leads um, and narratives in which gay characters just just get to be characters. I heard things like, oh, you know, they won't let you show this at a Disney show. And I'm like, okay. So I was a little like sus when I started. And, but then my experience was bafflingly the opposite of what I had heard on my little pocket of like, you know, proud family, Disney TVA. Um, the showrunners were super welcoming Meredith Roberts and like the, the our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like, my like not at all secret gay agenda. And so like, I, I feel like I felt like it was, I mean, like maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess like something must've happened in the last, like, like they are turning it around, they're going hard. And then all that like momentum that I felt like that sense of, I don't have to be afraid to like, 
let's have these two characters kiss let's in the background this like i was just wherever i could just basically adding queerness to like the two more groomers this is what disney is it is the worldwide leader in grooming and people have been complaining about this people have noticed this there are many of them shot, shouted down, oh, you're conspiracy theorists, that we don't want to do anything to your kids. We're not trying to groom your kids in X, Y, and Z. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And so Disney, again, a great, maybe the most powerful cultural influencer in America, perhaps on the planet, they have a clear agenda as it relates to young people and sexuality and gender. Grooming of sexuality, gender, politics, racial worldview is pervasive in America. It's going on everywhere. That's why there are gay pride parades where they're taking young kids to these parades, dressing them up in sexualized fashions, having them parade around and participate in parades where adults are dressed up in a very sexualized fashion. This is commonplace in America. Young kids are being groomed along sexuality lines, certainly along racial lines. We, the drag queen story hour deal is out of control. We have normalized drag queen story hours at local libraries for little kids. This is somehow seen as the greatest thing you can do and it's the most inclusive thing you can do. Bring biological men dressed up as women and have them read to your kids. That's inclusive. That's progress. This is Disney's agenda, grooming, in every way possible. And so, to tie this all together, they've been grooming the sports world in diversity, inclusion, and equity. Die, D-I-E. If you're wondering why the sports world has now become as soft, as feelings-based, as obsessed with race and victimization and victimhood. It's because that's what Disney and ESPN have been grooming us for. They have changed the sports world incredibly. And it wasn't done at the snap of a finger. This has been a 20-year process a 25-year process of taking over the sports world and injecting it with diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's no longer about great competition. It's about quota systems. And that's why there's so much discussion about black coaches. Have they been treated fairly? Are there enough women in coaching positions in football or basketball? Disney does not care about competition. It does not care about a meritocracy.
Disney is a global corporation that wants the sports world and the rest of American society to get on board with the new world order that does not care about democracy, capitalism, or freedom. It cares mostly about communism and a world that favors an elite class of people and victims and oppressors. And that's why the entire conversation now about sports, and that's why so many idiots sit on ESPN and are placed out there as leaders of thought on race. So they can lead this very dumbed down, feelings obsessed, non-factual, emotional discussion about race. Oh, Brian Flores, he got fired from the Dolphins after three years. That's gotta be racism. Oh, we can ignore the fact that Stephen Ross, his whole, his damn near entire organization is run by black people. The general manager that couldn't get along with Brian Flores was black. But we got Shannon Sharp and these other idiots and uh, Ryan Clark and the people on ESPN, they all run out there, the Dolphins are racist because it's all about diversity, inclusion, and equity. They have turned the sports world into everything you hate about your job. People getting jobs not based on their work, not based on their work ethic, not based on their uh, production, but based on some quota system that the human resources department came up with. Oh, is that person gay? Is he transphobe? Is he black? Is he a woman? Does he think he's a woman? Those are the key elements of moving up now in the sports world. They've corrupted the sports world. This whole little debate model they've come up with at ESPN and Disney. It's about a dumb conversation that people who know nothing about sports can participate in. If diversity, inclusion, and equity are your uh, primary decision makers and qualifications, not whether you know anything about football, Take, and I hate to pick on Mina Kimes, but I, I gotta be honest. What does she know about football? She's there because of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And so everybody else, those football players, they have her talking to. They have to dumb down their conversation so that she can participate. I don't wanna just single her out because it happens to men as well. It's, you know how Bomani Jones became a star at ESPN? He doesn't know anything about sports. He's never played it. The guy's like six foot four, 120 pounds. I'm not exaggerating. He couldn't play volleyball. Wind would blow him away. But that, when, when diversity, inclusion, and equity, Again, you just dumb down the conversation to a point 
where people that don't know what they talk about, what they're talking about can participate. And so it's an explosion of idiots that don't know what they're talking about, but they can damn sure talk all day about, well, I think this person's racist. I've never met them. I don't know anything about their organization, but I think they're racist. They're white. And racism could be the only explanation for why they did what they did. Disney loves it. It sounds exactly like the conversations that go on inside a corporation overrun by special interest groups. They've turned the sports world into Disney's headquarters. And a select group of puppet masters and elites get to decide who gets jobs, who doesn't get jobs, who the good guys are, who the bad guys are. It's not about your work. It's not about your production. Disney has ruined the sports world. Everything. Oh, are women, is the women's soccer team getting paid enough? Are they experiencing sexism? The WNBA. No one watches them. It loses $60 million a year. But why aren't these players flying private like NBA players? That's sexism. <laughs> Adam Silver is running around right now wondering why, and he's talked about it publicly. Hey, we're going to have to cut these games down. These superstar players don't want to play in 82 games. We're going to have to address this. We've got to come up with incentives to make our players want to compete. And he's wondering why? Because the players have been convinced they're victims, that they're being exploited. Because every time they turn on ESPN or Fox Sports, that's what they're being told. Them racist owners are exploiting you. How dare they ask you to play 82 games like Moses Malone and Dr. J did? They're running the NFL like a slave plantation. They're at, they, want, they actually want you to earn these millions of dollars by playing in these games. Those racist bigots. That's what Disney has done to sports. Everybody in sports is now a victim. Sports used to be about champions and victors. Now it's about victims. You had people, Juwan Howard gets his butt kicked in a regular season basketball game, slaps an opposing assistant, assistant coach, and you got people talking about that he's a victim of a white man touching his elbow. And that's why he slapped a different white man. Because the Wisconsin head coach touched his elbow. Those types of discussions did not happen before Disney's takeover of sports. A person that would make any of those type arguments would be laughed off air and be told never to come back before Disney and ESPN, before Disney 
totally changed ESPN. Now everything is about feelings. If, if Jawan Howard feels disrespected, it doesn't matter whether he was actually disrespected. Disney has feminized America. The education system, the movie and music industry, and now the sports world. If you go back to the crying videos I used to play of the ESPN guys, and I love Herb Street, but Randy Moss, Ryan Clark, all these guys crying on TV about nothing. That's Disney. Men used to not do that. They're used to, there's no crying in baseball. Now the greatest thing you can do is go on TV and cry about nothing. Oh, he's in touch with his emotions. I think, and I apologize to TJ and Steve Moe, I didn't plan on going on for as long as I have, but I, I think I unpacked that. I think that's, we're being groomed. The sports world is being groomed. No different than your five-year-old in first grade or kindergarten or whatever they're in is being groomed. They're grooming us in the sports world as well. Before I go to TJ Moe, I wanna uh, briefly uh, tell you about my great friends at Good Ranchers. You guys know I love Good Ranchers. You guys know how I feel about Good Ranchers. You guys know what you need to be doing. Good Ranchers is on your side, on your team, with all this inflation going on and the price of meat and the price of everything going up. You can go to GoodRanchers.com fearless. You can lock in your price for beef, chicken, seafood, steaks, hamburgers, all kinds of stuff. You can lock it in and inflation-proof your price of meat, and you can buy 100% American source, meat that supports American farmers and ranchers, meat that supports you, me, and what we believe in. Only, look, again, there's some simple things we can do to push back against this culture that's being overtaken by Disney and all these other satanic leftists. And one of the easiest things you can do is support companies like Good Ranchers that support you. You gotta eat, we all gotta eat. We're all gonna spend money on food. If you have an opportunity to spend it with a company that supports you and your worldview and your beliefs and traditional American values, only a trader wouldn't do it. GoodRanchers.com slash fearless. Use the promo code fearless. Get $30 off your next meat order. Do the smart thing. Support Good Ranchers. Support yourself. All right, when we come back, well, you know what? I don't even need to go anywhere. Isn't TJ Moe ready to roll? No? TJ, yeah, let's go out. Let's roll out to TJ Moe. I don't got to go nowhere. TJ. Uh, I don't even know where to start <clears throat> other than to uh, say that Disney destruction of American culture extends beyond 
what it's doing to little kids in classrooms and at the movie theaters. Uh, it's, it's ruined the sports world as well. And, and this has really come into focus for me over the last few months uh, where, again, I, I think we overlook the significance of Disney's involvement, takeover of ESPN. I think that's absolutely right. One thing that came to mind when you were um, talking about the feminization of what is now business and the sports world, too, was the new Simone Biles Powerade commercial about the power of pause. And we're celebrating how awesome it is for you to sit out the Olympics when your country is counting on you the most. I mean, it's it it is not I think we've moved in a good way to where we should not be just crushing people in their hardest moment. We used to do that, but we certainly shouldn't be them celebrating them failing us in that moment. And that's what we're doing. We're now celebrating failure. We are celebrating failure. We're feminizing, making everything about feelings. And as you and Glenn discussed yesterday, we are attacking businesses and the nuclear family. All of those things, masculinity, the, the nuclear family, small business, have held America together. That's what America was built on and the godly principles that came with it. And so, you know, one, one of the things that came to my mind when you were talking about the, the Disney lady who has two queer kids, as she's described it, the only way you could get up there and say that with a straight face is that you feel so terrible that you've screwed up your own kids so bad that you are trying to screw up other people's kids to normalize your parental shortfalls. That's what she's doing. And someone has allowed her into a place of power to do that. So we've lost God. So we're looking for a place to create our own morality. Right. And so uh, one thing I, w I was thinking about, I, I first, I first heard this term back in September. What we're seeing here is the shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism. And so uh, Barry Weiss in her Substack, had a guy, I think I'm saying his name right, Vivek Ramaswamy, you can look it up. He wrote a book called Woke Inc. And he wrote in the Substack here, the dangers of stakeholder capitalism. And, and I've heard uh, Dan Bongino, Ben Shapiro, a couple guys talk about this, but I don't think very many people know about it. So I want to take a second to explain it. And so what, what shareholder capitalism is the capitalism that we all assume we are working under. And that is that the ultimate measure of a company's success is its profits and how it can take care of its shareholders. That's obviously that works. The, the consumer has decided that your product or service is worth more than their money. So they have traded their money for that. That's good. If you are profitable, that means you can provide jobs. That's also good, right? So it's working for everyone. That's the way we all understand it. We have shifted to stakeholder capitalism. And this is coming from the very top. Uh, stakeholder capitalism is the notion that a firm focuses on meeting the needs of all of its stakeholders. And stakeholders are defined as customers, employees, partners, the community, and society as a whole. So what it's done is it has completely allowed you to get out of your responsibility to your shareholders. We just say, well, whatever's best for society. So Joe Biden in his campaign trail uh, back in, in the 2020 election, he was preaching this. He said, uh, quote, it's way past time we put an end to the era of shareholder capitalism. The idea that only responsibility a corporation has is with its shareholders. That idea is an absolute farce. They have a responsibility to their workers, their community, and their country. So he's preaching this, coming from the top. The World Economic Forum 
in the, the Davos Manifesto in 2020 is preaching this. The first line of this said the purpose of a company is to engage all of its stakeholders in shared and sustained value creation. So they are shifting the notion of what capitalism is. Remember, they tried socialism for a very long time. They tried a Bernie out there twice in the last two elections and could not get him there. So they've shifted now from socialism to stakeholder capitalism, or Elizabeth Warren calls it accountability capitalism. They are saying, well, Americans obviously really like capitalism, so we've got to find a way to change what that actually is to get what we want. And so executives, many of them are screwed up like the Disney executive that you saw. Again, can't control her own kids and she has so many shortcomings at her own house. She's trying to screw up other kids or many of these people themselves are so screwed up that they're trying to get the world to accept them and recruit people. That's one reason. But the other reason is we have a lot of people who are executives in these large corporations who look to Twitter as what Elon Musk called it, the de facto town, uh, town square. And I don't know if you've ever looked up the makeup of Twitter, but it ain't good, okay? In 2019, the Pew Research Center came out with uh, basically the discourse that occurs and who it comes from on Twitter. 92% of all tweets come from 10% of posters. So 10% of people are creating all of the content. And of those 10%, seven out of 10 of those people are Democrats. And when they say Democrats, actually, if you, if you go read this study, they call themselves hardcore leftists. So this, this is the fringe of all of the crazy people. They're all on Twitter and they're posting of those 10%. Again, a lot of numbers here, but the Democrats in that 10% are posting twice as often as the Republicans. So to clarify here, of all the people that are going, it is, it is very likely that the, the, Tweets from the leftists are four times as frequent as tweets from conservatives. And so not only do we have the shadow banning and the censorship and the deplatforming of conservatives, but of all of the content that's disseminating, it's coming from the fringe leftists. So you have Joe Biden and you have the World Economic Forum coming out and saying we need to move to stakeholder capitalism. And then you go to Twitter and all these people are supporting that. So the executives that otherwise might be reasonable are looking to that and saying, OK, this is obviously the wor where the world's going. We're not just responsible to our shareholders, we're responsible to our stakeholders. Well, that's a real problem because the stakeholders obviously are not invested in your company at all. You're just a tool to them. You, they will use you for as long as they need to and then they'll move on to the next company that's useful to them because they are not actually affected by what happens to your company. So they have this political agenda, whatever reason that may be, and they say, you guys need to do this, it's for the betterment of society. And then you do that, your profits go down, and so your shareholders are upset, and then the consumers leave you and they've turned their back on you. This is what's happening to Disney Plus right now. And, and then you have to minimize your jobs because you can't afford to pay that many people. So a lot of people get laid off. And then you're stuck there with a company that was once a monster that's going to be far less impactful because you have decided that society is who should be dictating your values instead of the people that are actually involved and have put their own livelihood at risk to do that. And when you do put your own livelihood at risk to do that and you turn around and decide that those are the people that you should make happy, remember the consumers are happy because they're the ones trading their money for your goods or service. And the employees are happy because they have a job and if you have a, a growing company that's doing well, then you can afford to pay them more. You can create more jobs. And so one thing, one thing I was looking at and that I thought is fascinating, this is not a new idea. It, it, it turns out leftists don't have any new ideas. 
Uh, Marxism is not new. It has been tried many times over and they're still pushing it. Socialism, not new. This is not a new idea either. This, this idea was born in 1932 and it was tried for about 40 years. In 1970 is actually when we began pursuing maximizing shareholder value. Milton Freeman, who's my favorite economist of all time, he won a Nobel Prize in economics. In 1970, he said this, any business executives who pursued a goal other than making money were, quote, unwitting puppets of the intellectual forces that have been undermining the basis of a free society for the last four decades. That's from the greatest economy of, of our time. So we have a bunch of people who have decided that stakeholder capitalism is the way to go, and it's going to wreck their business. You obviously said a mouthful. Stakeholder capitalism, to me, just sounds like rebranding of socialism or communism. It's just, uh, uh, it's just taking the word capitalism and covering it up, giving it a beard or whatever, but it, it's just, it's just rebranding of socialism and or mm -hmm. uh, communism. And it's just a gateway drug to get you where they really want you to go. Uh, the other thing, because one, you unpacked a lot, and, and at some point we'll circle back on the stakeholder and shareholder, but one of the things I've noticed with executives and what Twitter and social media have done is it's eliminated leadership, and mm -hmm. it prioritizes survival. And so <laughs> what I see from every top executive at virtually any company, big or small, they're just thinking, how can I survive? What decision can I make today that will allow me to survive and to keep collecting this check? And so uh, Roger Goodell, I'm going to use him as the example. He's making 50 million a year. His number one goal every day is how can I make, continue to make 50 million a year? He's not thinking about, hey, how can I protect the sport of football, the NFL brand? Uh, how can I make this business stronger and stay true to the values it was founded on and made it great. Every decision he makes is about his own survival so that he can keep collecting that $50 million. And mm -hmm. I see the same mentality with executives that make $300,000 is what decision can I make to keep myself out of the Twitter crosshairs so that I can survive? Because they know they, that someone can ring up to take, take what happened to Papa John. He's a personal friend of mine. John Schneider, Ball State graduate, friend of mine, built up Papa John's Pizza. Uh, they used social media and twisted some interaction he had uh, with a public relations firm and ran him out of his own company. <laughs> That's everybody's worst nightmare. You build up a company, make it, you know, everything that Papa John's Pizza is, and they on some BS, they ran him out of his own company using social media and some bought and paid for uh, corporate media. And so everybody's in survival mode. And, and it's why the decisions and the moves that I made, I don't, I want to thrive. I'm willing to die in pursuit of thriving. <laughs> and uh, it's why I had to get away from the whole corporate landscape because I just want to say the truth, speak the truth, 
and, and even when I'm wrong in terms of, because I'll admit, like, oh, I'm wrong and I'll pivot to a different truth if, if I'm shown better information or whatever. I just want that freedom and I could care less about what social media has to say about me. Uh, but that is not the case of most people. And, and, you know, maybe one day I'll be in Roger Goodell's shoes making $50 million and I'll capitulate on every issue as well to protect that 50. It's unlikely, it's highly unlikely. I've, I've made a lot of decisions that have cost me money and I'll probably continue to do that. But TJ, I gotta go, cause I went too long. Uh, I wanna get to the Korean Cosell. Uh, next. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're gonna move on and bring in uh, Tennessee State Representative Tom Leatherwood, a former school teacher uh, before joining uh, Tennessee's House of Representatives. Uh, uh, Tom is from the Memphis area. He's the sponsor of a bill that has turned controversial. I hate to call it controversial, but it's a bill about common law marriage between one man and one woman. Uh, Democrats have seized upon it to twist it into a bill that uh, seemingly through a loophole would allow minors to marry or for adults to marry minors. There's no age limit or restriction. Anyway, I wanted to bring Tom Leatherwood on and have him explain what his original thought was. I believe it's called, the bill is called HB 233, uh, I believe. Uh, so Tom, uh, welcome to the show. And, and please explain to us first, we'll start here. What was the point, what, what are you trying to accomplish with your common law marriage bill? First, thank you, Jason, for the opportunity to be on and try and clear up just all the misinformation that is just flying around out there. Uh, the dogs have definitely been uh, released on me here, but that's just part of being in public life. Um, first, this bill changes nothing in current Tennessee law regarding marriage, and it does not allow minors to get married. And in the version that I passed through subcommittee, it would not have allowed minors to get married because it forms a contract. And before they reach the age of consent or majority, they could not enter into this contract. But to try and satisfy these indirect attacks on the bill, I amended it to explicitly say both parties have to have reached the age of majority, which in Tennessee is defined as 18 years or older. Um, what the bill does, the problem we were trying to fix, um, in current Tennessee law and with the court cases associated with that are process and the certificates of change where it used to be a section on the marriage certificate for bride and their information, their parents' names and groom, same thing. The certificates now through this process and again related to the court actions, you've got applicant one, bridegroom partner, applicant two, bridegroom partner, you've got father or parent, mother or parent. And then at the bottom, the ministers, the officiants sign off on that. Well, ministers came to me who had conscientious objections based on their deep religious convictions 
they had problems signing off on this marriage certificate. So all this bill would do is create a parallel pathway to marriage in Tennessee law. And the bill lays out there um, in substantial form what the marriage certificate will say, that marriage is between one man, one woman. And uh, instead of having bridegroom, partner one, bridegroom, partner two, where you can have groom, groom, bride, bride, partner, groom, bride, partner, partner, partner. I mean, we, we know there's a lot of options these days. Um, it would just say bride and groom. Again, it's not eliminating the current certificate or pathway, not changing that at all. A man can get a marriage license, marry a man in Tennessee today. If my bill passes, a man can get a marriage license and marry another man and get a certificate that reflects that. But I um, fully understand and agree with these pastors' objections to signing off on that form. And Frankly, Tennessee overwhelmingly voted in a statewide referendum to add to our state constitution that marriage is between one man and one woman. So it seems like we ought to be able to just carve out a little niche for these people. <laughs> so, Tom, let me ask you this uh, just for clarification. If I'm a minister and I object to marrying two men, why can't I just say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that and, and leave it at that? Um, you could in that case, but say you're going to marry a man and a woman. And then they present you the marriage certificate to sign off on. Well, the marriage certificate says, you know, bridegroom, partner, bridegroom, partner, and then you're signing off on this form that recognizes, um, acknowledges, and in many people's eyes, um, promotes something they deeply disbelieve, don't believe in. I mean, just think of something you disagree with and you go to sign a contract on something and it really has nothing to do with you buying that car or buying that house or whatever. But the form says, you know, these facts or these points of view that you disagree with and you have to sign off on that. Now, why can't there be a form that says bridegroom and that parents, you have a father and a mother as opposed to a parent parent? You know, why can't we have this other form? Again, not taking away the one that's there today, but why can't they just have one that says this marriage that I'm performing is between a man and a woman, a bride and a groom, and they have a mother and a father. That's I, I, it really I, a simple. I, I get what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying. There are people and I would imagine this extends beyond ministers, there may be a bride and a groom whose religious convictions would compel them to say, I don't want a marriage license that recognizes a form of marriage that violates my religious principles. And so the objection could not just be from ministers, it could be from uh, the participants in the marriage in not wanting to get married on a license that 
seems to co-sign or promote or normalize a form of marriage that their religious views have made them see as disobedient to God. So, so I, I get it. Let me ask you this though, having, uh, you're an experienced politician, did you not see this little loophole that the Democrats or people, because again, I, I don't even know if I would, it is the Democrats, but it's really the LGBT crowd that is really upset with you and look for a loophole to try to uh, distort what your bill was actually doing. And because as soon as I read the story, I was like, well, hold on, man, the guy's not trying to legalize marriage between minors. He's trying to do something else. But could, could you not anticipate that and just have put it in the original bill that you had to be 18 to, to participate in this form of marriage? Um, sorry about that. <laughs> I don't no worries. I've got a cat ringtone on my phone. It just started ringing. Um, First, a point you made with not just ministers, but participants, you're absolutely right. It was ministers signed off on a petition. But frankly, my district knows what I'm doing. I've gotten so much support from rank and file individuals that totally get it. They knew they knew this being so. So it is individuals as well. And thankfully, um, I've got a very conservative Republican district, so they get it. And it is more than ministers. So you are absolutely right with that. Um, As far as changing the verbiage originally, I, I wish I had at this point. But again, the bill that I passed through subcommittee, it did not say it explicitly. But we were forming a contract, a marital contract, and minors cannot enter into these contracts. You know, they haven't reached the age of majority or the age of consent. So they could not um, do this. So the people on the front lines, they knew minors couldn't enter into these contracts, but they saw, frankly, not a loophole, but a way to distort what they knew was in there. And so once we were aware that it was becoming distorted and um, you made another good point I'll come back to, but once we realized it was being distorted, uh, I offered and have put an amendment on there that explicitly says the A. So it wasn't a loophole. It was just, frankly, where deceivers found an opportunity to deceive those people that some are easily deceived, others just want to be deceived. But you made um, a point about this really being the lesbian and homosexual uh, crowd. They're very well organized nationally. Um, They tried to stop this bill coming through committee in the House and Senate directly testifying against it, but it came right out of committee because the people understood on the committee. But once it came out of committee and the direct attacks didn't work, suddenly this became an international um, issue. You know, BBC got in touch with me, people all over the country. That did not happen naturally uh, because 
I offered the amendment to solve that problem. So this wasn't a natural growth of people having concerns. This was an orchestrated um, attack by a very well-organized nationwide group. I mean, that's the only explanation, frankly, why it showed up on your radar. And uh, I have somebody I went to high school with said, I heard your name on the radio in Atlanta. You know, I said, that can't be Tom Motherwood. And so it, it's been interesting. Uh, it's been interesting. <laughs> Tom, let me, let me ask this and I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, obviously, you're a politician. You're there to represent your constituents. You've said that, you know, your constituents are backing you. And, and so I get that. You're doing what a politician is supposed to do back his constituents' beliefs and, and look for laws that support them. I do want to ask you, though, personally, uh, is any of this personal on your part? It, it, are your religious convictions in line with what you're hearing from your constituents? Is, this the, 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 is it just a reflection of what your constituents want to do, or is it also what Tom Leatherwood believes? Uh, it is also what Tom Leatherwood believes. And it's important to represent your constituents. I believe I do that. Um, along those lines, I've been told you'll end up drawing opposition over this issue. And sure enough, two days ago, you know, an opponent is trying to run with this and support the other side. So I did draw opposition, but that's part of the game. So it's important to represent your constituents. But you said your beliefs, I phrase convictions. First and foremost, it's important for me to represent my convictions and then represent my constituents. And if my constituents don't like my convictions, the process is uh, my opponent on this issue will win the election. And so be it. I'm at peace with that because, again, I feel like uh, my final judgment <laughs> comes uh, after death. And that's the only one that I'm really concerned about in the long run. And as an example, I've told people, if, if my district became 100% pro-choice, I'm still going to be pro-life because end of the day, I have to live with myself, my family and answer to my God. And if I lose the election, so be it. There's life after elected office. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. Hey, thank you, Mr. Leatherwood. We appreciate you taking the time and clarifying this issue for our audience. Uh, God bless you. Thank you for the I, opportunity. I really appreciate it. No worries. Uh, get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Uncle Jimmy will help us with uh, our approval rating on Mickey Mouse and Disney. Next. must exist in a state of man glorious as we are protected by the red, the white, and the blue. But remember, the mind is the key. The fearless soldier pledges to place God first and foremost in his everyday endeavors of life. We, the fearless army, are one nation under God, indivisible with freedom 
and a belief in the American dream. The men bold enough to join our movement comprise what we like to call the new dream team. We are leaders of our families, our churches, and of this nation. We reject the seeds of division that are planted by corporate media misinformation. We affirm that all men are created equal and are endowed with inalienable rights, which are granted by our Heavenly Father. We are bound by honor to accept God's challenge, to take the flag and lead, to cherish, to protect, and to nurture the life of our unborn seed. I am a fearless soldier, so shed no tears for me. I am not a victim. I am the man that God made me to be. Amen. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to wrap up the weekend, wrap up the show with an approval rating uh, on Mickey Mouse and Uncle Jimmy. We had a big, long discussion. I had a big, long discussion about uh, Disney and its uh, impact on American culture and now sports culture. T.J. Moe with some good stuff. We didn't quite get to uh, the Korean Cosell. Um, yeah, yeah. But, I, and Jim, uh, your thoughts on Mickey Mouse? I, I just, just one thing real quick before I go. I, I, I'd like to change this segment to who did Jason Whitlock give a nut punch to today, but <laughs> I'm going to change. I don't want to do that. I mean, what, what is the deal with you? Can you ever let me just have some media figures without every day you just give a kibosh to them and knock them down? Who did I kill today? I can't remember. What, what, why Bumani Jones? You know I used to like Bumani Jones. You know I used to like him. You did? Remember, I, I, I didn't have a problem with the dude. Jim, the guy is six foot five and 117 pounds. Just look at him. <laughs> so then you talk about him again today and I suddenly realize I'll never look at Bumani Jones the same again. <laughs> you said this dude is so skinny that if he staying sideways and stick out his tongue, he'll look like a zipper. <laughs> He can't play volleyball. Anyway, I, come I on, man. Say, let's man. go. Man. Uh, Leave my dude alone. Man. <laughs> I just, I didn't, that was not, again, today was unscripted. I just said things that came to my head. Uh, yeah, Mickey Mouse, Disney, uh, our approval rate. I, I don't, have you been following this, Jim? I mean, I broke it all down today, uh, but this whole little Disney is coming out of the closet as the headquarters for the LGBT, the alphabet mafia, basically. Yeah. Um, you got kids. If, if I may, if I may. Yeah. Because I told you I was listening to some station, a channel, and I asked you, I said, man, what is the deal with this, with this channel, the TYT? I heard oh, them the talking terms. about this. And they were actually talking about it. And the thing that they said was, Just, you, you guys don't realize half of the staff at Disney is queer. And people that work at Disney are very, I mean, they're yeah. even the, I don't even like saying that word, but it evidently what even word? the Q word. Queer? Q and, yeah. That's what they like. Yeah, I know, but I, I don't like saying I'm just saying I don't like it. But in other words, evidently at Disney, even the queers are getting upset at how bad they get. Oh, the queers don't like? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. This is according to the Young Turks. According to the, the, the Young Transgenders, whatever that station is called. <laughs> 
You get it. Come on, man. Uh, all right. Uh, approval on Disney uh, job performance. On Mickey, excuse me, on Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse. I'm trying to see. You you put stipulations on me. Come on. Uh, They're trying to pervert our kids, so I'm going to give them a zero in job performance. I give them a 25. I give Mickey Mouse a 25. Mickey Mouse is the Don of the gay mafia. (laughs) Mickey Mouse is the original LGB. Why you give me a STD? (laughs) <laughs> He's the original. Disney has been doing the devil's work for years. Disney is the very reason why all of our cartoons have gone to hell. South Park, Beavis and Butthead, Simpsons, all of them. Just straight to hell. Come on, man. Uh, character, I, I f- find them very low in character. Uh, they're groomers. They're the worldwide leaders in grooming. Uh, so I'll give them a zero in character. Okay, you said this. You and I didn't talk about this, but you said they're the worldwide leaders in grooming. I gave them a, I gave them a 25 in character for the very reason that you said, because they are the worldwide leader in grooming. But see, we don't realize we didn't realize as kids they were the worldwide leader in grooming, did we? We just thought we was just watching cartoons, right? Remember, remember what we watch? Uh, Tweety, Porky Pig. Bugs Bunny. Every time you turn around, Bugs Bunny kissing on a man. Am I right? Big Bird. Elmo, Bert and Ernie, the Teletubbies, SpongeBob and Squidward. All of them was a little bit, as Red Fox would say, Jason, they was all a little. <laughs> all them characters. Think about it. Hey, man, we came up in the air. I don't know about you, man. I like Froghorn, Leghorn, uh, 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 Popeye and Brutus. You, you, you know, uh, 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 uh. uh. I like Scooby Doo, but I heard is Scooby Doo is that? Well, Scooby Doo was a weed head. Well, come on, man. He he, he ate edibles. Come on, man. <laughs> come on. Uh, authenticity. I gotta admit, they're becoming more authentic. They're coming out of the closet about what it is their agenda is. So I, I gotta give them some credit here. So I give them a fourteen in authenticity. You see how we do? I give them a zero. What did I just tell you? Mickey Mouse is not a male. Okay, he's not a male. I don't give a doggone what you say. Disney. Hannah, Bar- Hannah Barbera, Hannah Montana, all of them, all of them. They've been programming our, well, they've been programming us, and they done programmed our kids. See, you keep on talking about it. That's really, really, really what they did. But it was funny when we was little, okay? All right, and then we sit up here talking about our men nowadays. What's wrong with the men of America? We grew up watching Mickey Mouse. I'm just saying, we, we grew up watching all them little stupid-ass cartoons I just told you about, and then we want to know why men act like they, why they do today. Come on, I'm sorry. Uh, it Factor. They still got some power. They're still popular, so I'm going to give Mickey Mouse a 20 in It Factor. Kids still love it. And, you know, you know, I guess now you go to Disney World, and they won't even say welcome boys and girls anymore. I think they say welcome them and they. Or I, I don't know what. I give them a zero, man. This is the problem right here. This right here is a problem. This is why our kids have gender issues. This is the whole ship shop bam and caboodle right here. I don't like it. And this, you hit it. Our kids have been programmed for this foolishness. And then we as adults want to sit there and go, what's wrong with our kids? You know what the hell's wrong with our kids. You ain't teaching them nothing. You letting them sit in front of that idiot box. Come on, man, I'm done. You know, my grandmother always said idiot box. That's what she always called the TV, the idiot box. So she would be happy to know that you're the king of the idiot box yeah, now, huh? She was literally, that was her love the saying, the idiot box. And here we are. Hey, look at us nowadays. 80, 90 years later. And she's there we go. The curve. All right, uh, I've got uh, Mickey Mouse at a 34 in the dumpster fire. 
You almost had them candle lit, I think. You know, yeah. at 50, you still got them at a dumpster fire. They still a dumpster fire. I, you know, I, I, I was still a big Hannibal Bear fan. I, you know, I remember. Dun, 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 dun. I, I was a big Banana Splits fan. I don't even know what that is. Isn't that something at Dairy Queen? All right, we got to go. <laughs> Thank you. Looking like a flat time, feeling all kinds of free. These words are our religion, our regrets, and our decisions. We don't want to go to heaven with freedom. It's my obligation, no hate, discrimination. Raising up your hands for freedom. Raise up your hands for freedom. I just want, I want to be, I just want.